Welcome everyone to another episode of In A Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, in which we look at the news and trends in the global gas industry. My name is Joseph Murphy, and the topics of this podcast are EU-Russian energy relations and the energy transition in Europe. Uh, I'm joined today by Kirsten uh, Westphal, a senior associate at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Kirsten is also on the advisory board of the Regional Center for Energy Policy Research Foundation in Budapest. She is also a member of the Scientific Council of the Royal Institute Elcano in Madrid and a member of Germany's National Hydrogen Council. Welcome, Kirsten. Glad to have you with us. Hi, Joe. Glad to be with you. I thought we could start uh, this discussion by talking about uh, Russia's energy relationship and with Europe and how it's changed over the years um, and the prospects for this relationship moving forward. Uh, so Russia's Gazprom remains Europe's main gas supplier, meeting roughly a third of its demand. Uh, but over the years, the EU and national governments have raised concerns about Gazprom abusing its dominant position and how Europe's dependence on Russian gas poses a potential risk to energy security um, and increases Moscow's political leverage in the EU. Um, I just wondered if you could walk me through how EU policy, uh, the third energy package, uh, the EU-backed infrastructure developments, um, have sought to mitigate against these risks. Uh, is Europe's continued reliance on Russian gas a justified source of concern? No, I, I think not, not any longer. Um, I think these concerns are really or were a relevant issue of the past, of mm -hmm. the 1990s, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the emergence of new transit countries and the first decade of the um, 21st century, yes. But mm -hmm. as you rightly said, then the, the third energy market package came and we, we completely got a new market situation. And this really helped to balance and, and hedge the, the, the strong um, economic influence and market position of Gazprom. Um, and I think it, what, it, what it has really developed over the past decade is um, that the EU has a very sharp tool at, at, at its hand with, with the regulation. Um, so this is one thing that we've really seen that the market liberalization took also place in, in Eastern European markets. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the soft, let's say the, the, the software, but it's also the hardware of interconnectors, which were built as a lesson of the 2009 gas crisis. So I think um, the EU is in a much better position than in 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. um, because we, we, we have physically the possibility to shift flows of gas, but also virtually. Um, and then, well, besides this hard and, and software in the market, there's also the issue of LNG terminals mm -hmm. um, and, and, and increased regasification capacities. And of course, the influence of the shale revolution first, bringing prices down, really speeding up the liberalization in EU markets, and are also, again, really well-supplied um, LNG markets after 2018 with competitive prices. So there's really a business case to use um, LNG markets. So um, to, to, from, from my point of view, there, there shouldn't be any concern that 
the Gazprom or the Kremlin could leverage this dependency, quote-unquote, on, <laughs> on, on large import volumes. And my final point would be also, of course, Eastern Europe has always been a special point of concern. But I think we have really seen kind of policies of going towards energy sovereignty in Eastern Europe and not only um, interconnecting what I described before with the European market, but also globally really interconnecting with the LNG global market. So the, the terminals, um, a Klaipeda terminal in Lithuania is a, is a case in point and Swinoshtia terminal in Poland. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Gazprom has kind of adjusted to the times. Um, so traditionally, it, it, it sold its gas in Europe using these oil indexed uh, contracts. And there's still yeah. a fairly large share of, of its um, its sales now, but it's also introduced a lot of uh, hub-based hub pricing. And uh, it's also launched its electronic sales platform in, in, in 2008. Uh, just to, I mean, I, I guess to make its gas more competitive. Um, uh, with, exactly. And, no, no, and, I definitely. Yeah. No, I uh, definitely agree. This is a yeah. major, major point. The settlement of the antitrust case, which I forgot to mention, um, which was a long case. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was settled in 2018, and this was a very important step to to bring or move up pricing, as you said, eastwards. Mm -hmm. Um, sticking with the same topic, uh, what, perhaps the most controversial energy project in Europe today is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which of course will pipe an extra uh, 55 billion cubic meters per year of Russian gas to Central Europe. Um, it has a fair number of opponents, but also supporters, uh, but the opponents say that it will leave Russia even more dependent on uh, Moscow for energy and also on one one key route between Russia and Germany. Um, and they warn that this has political implications. Are, are these concerns justified? No. Uh, I, I think Nord Stream 2 is really a tricky issue because it has not only economic dimensions and legal dimensions, but also the geopolitical dimensions. And I think we, we will touch on this later, maybe on, on Ukraine. But, but the whole argument that this is um, giving leverage to the Kremlin, and I, I really don't, don't see that. Um, um, because, yeah, um, we've, 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 we've discussed the situation in the European markets. So I think um, you can only exert um, power um, and pressure if you if there are no flex if there's no flexibility and other options, and mm -hmm. and of course there are, but of course I mean Ukraine is really um, the headache. It, it has an influence on on Ukraine. It's it certainly has been directed to bypass Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. but also there I think um, the, the the steps done in the past um, were quite important. What we are seeing, um, especially in, in during this summer, that you, um, Ukraine has really become a part of the European market. We're seeing how important the storage facilities in Ukraine are. 
because they are used now and this is part of the story where the network codes it codes applied the backhole options that we have with the Ukraine being a part of the energy community and having applied or starting to apply the acquis communautaire and we've also seen um, the issue that Ukraine no longer really buys natural gas from Russia but remains in a transit country and this was um, the major yeah motivation behind the the, the negotiations um, the EU had with um, Ukraine and Russia and of course we saw the agreement in December which gives this this quite old um, pipeline system at least a perspective till 2024 mm -hmm. but um, yeah I, I think that Ukraine is 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 an issue and we have to see how this evolves, um, there will be necessity to, um, yeah, maybe even decommission some pipes, but at least to modernize and 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 readapt the the pipeline system to the flows internally, mm -hmm. the transit flows. That, yeah, I think this is an issue, um, but also an issue of um, decarbonizing natural gas and making Ukraine a part of these policies later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Nord Stream 2 has, I mean, it's fair to say it's its had its fair share of challenges. Um, yes. So the pipeline will have to <laughs> abide by EU energy law. Um, the US is working on additional sanctions against the project. Yeah. It has been for a while. Um, and more recently, Germany now faces calls to withdraw its support in light of the poisoning of um, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Um, do you think there's any remote possibility that uh, Berlin might cave under this pressure to, to withdraw its support? Uh, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is very difficult given the, the tricky situation right now. I mean, in, indeed, the, 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 this project has um, experienced sharp criticism since its inauguration in 2015, also in Germany, by the way. Uh, mostly mm -hmm. by foreign and security policy experts, really looking mm -hmm. at the deterioration with, with, with Russia and all the incidents we had as well with the hacking of, of the parliament, um, the so-called murder in the Tiergarten, and Navalny is mm -hmm. just another case on that. Um, and also you're right that the German government explicitly for the first time said we, we will scrutinize this project. It's, it's now on, on, on the table of the negotiations. Um, and of course we have seen very rude and crude reactions by the Russian side on, on, um, on, as a reaction on the pleas by Berlin to, to clarify what happened um, around Navalny and the case. But since Navalny left um, the hospital, I think the situation is more relaxed on, in, in that um, regard. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is a consolidation, let's say, in the, in the German debate that Navalny is, is, the Navalny case is more something for the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons, um, which deals with the use of Novichok. Um, and um, the, the, the um, sanctions would not necessarily, or, or not at all, better to say, um, not at all, um, include um, Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is that Germany, and we had a debate in, in the Bundestag, I think 10 days ago, 
around that matter, Germany still sticks really to the legal situation. For Germany, it's a rule of law. And there is a lot of talk that you, you have all the um, um, legal and regulatory necessary, um, yeah, if you apply it for something. So, so this, this has been justified. Um, so um, in, in order to keep the situation of the rule of law, um, it, it seems very unlikely that Germany touches on, on Nord Stream 2. And it, indeed, it has no real leverage legally and regulatory wise. Mm -hmm. um, so the only way would be really to go through the EU and the Article 215 of the Treaty of the Functioning of the European Union. But um, to be honest, I don't see a consensus in the EU. And in that regard, a discussion there in, in the Council would be a moment of truth also for the US and, and other observers that there is no real consensus against this project, at least not on, on the political sphere. Um, because I don't expect really the EU coming out with sanctions. I'm, I'm not sure whether this will be really in depth being discussed. Um, but what you rightly said, then this is the, the higher level, so to say, is the huge pressure of US sanctions because construction stopped in December. So mm -hmm. there's no, no real construction work going on. And this is the big question mark whether Nord Stream 2 um, can really go ahead with the vessels at hand um, and the whole um, zone, um, um, the whole situation around the yeah, bunch of US sanctions. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was interesting. This was, of course, uh, before the Navalny case. Um, the threat of additional US sanctions almost caused a kind of rallying behind uh, Nord Stream 2 in, in Germany and Europe. Um, so you had both on a, on a German level and a European level uh, politicians discussing uh, measures to protect businesses if they were um, uh, targeted by, by the US sanctions. So it, it almost seems like the, the sanctions had the opposite effect of their intention. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. There was a hearing in, in June in the Bundestag and um, the whole um, US bunch of secondary sanctions was really seen as a deep cut into German sovereignty. And this was widely discussed and there was a wide um, an anonymous consensus in the in the German elite. But it was also said that it is depriving the EU of its major tool regulation and making mockery of the whole lengthy regulatory process in the EU of applying finally the EU third energy market package to the to the project. So this is kind of the other dimension where I think we rarely talk about because to me, um, Nord Stream 2 is really just the tip of the iceberg because we have seen a kind of even overuse or overstretch of US sanctions against Iran, Venezuela, Russia, which really enlarges the gray zone for European companies to be active. And mm -hmm. I see um, this is um, opening a vacuum where you see Asian state companies, Chinese companies stepping in, which, which gives a drive to much more politicization of, of gas and energy markets as a whole. Uh, so I think this trend is strengthened by um, US sanctions, and I, I think it's, it's um, a concerning development, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, before we move on to the next uh, topic, um, 
with Nord Stream 2, let's assume it it it, it does come online. Um, where that's that's a huge amount of extra import capacity that Germany will have. Um, there's also a lot of LNG projects underway in Germany, um, as I understand. They're all at quite a quite an early stage of development. I don't. There's been no final investment decisions on any of them. Um, does Germany really need this extra import capacity in the form of LNG, or with with so much uh, import capacity between Germany and Europe, uh, in uh, between Germany and Russia, and also interconnection interconnection pipelines with its European neighbours? Is this LN, are these LNG projects needed? Um, well, this this is really a difficult question um, um, because we we simply don't know what we know is that the old argument that we are really shutting down now our final um, our last remaining nuclear power plants, mm -hmm. which is um, six nuclear power plants still with eight point five gigawatt, which is quite something. And also, we are close um, close to um, shut down the first um, lignite coal power plants. So we are st um, already seeing a loss of our electricity capacity, generation capacity of almost 20%. So there is really something to replace. And actually, in the last months, we have really seen before the corona crisis, of course, um, we have seen gas consumption in Germany increasing. And even uh, during the Corona crisis, we have just seen a very slow decrease um, and very light decrease of, of um, natural gas consumption. So there are indications, yes, that we will need more gas. And of course, what we know is that the domestic production is quickly decreasing, both in Germany, but also in the Netherlands. So there is at least a kind of import uh, gap whether you really need, um, and this is uh, indeed a debate in Germany, whether you really need um, Nord Stream 2 plus the LNG terminals, given the fact that um, we are well connected to LNG terminals in France, the Netherlands and so on, um, whether this should be really backed with um, public money. This is, this is a question as we want to move ahead with decarbonization. Organization. But um, what um, there, there have been studies out mentioning that we don't need any um, hydrocarbon fossil fuel infrastructure any longer. And these studies really based on target scenarios towards 2050. And, and I would warn here because this is simply is this target scenarios, but at best we are in best guess scenarios. So we're not really meeting our own targets. Um, and this is quite a broad uh, question, but um, how do you see EU slash Germany uh, relation, energy relations with uh, Russia evolving in the future? And maybe this can be a good segue into talking about the energy transition in, in more depth. Oh, you're posing really tricky questions. <laughs> I think a lot depends on on really on the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline and how, how and whether construction will resume. Um, I have big question marks because of US sanctions. 
Um, and then even maybe because the US and the EU still decides on something where I, I still have doubts. But um, I think this is really a burden for the future relationship. And I'm saying this because um, I, I think the relationship of of course, you have the geopolitical burden on, on this bilateral relationship, but Russia remains uh, the biggest neighbor. It remains um, the, the biggest energy supplier to the EU. Um, plus, it is potentially, of course, an interesting supplier of blue, turquoise, hydrogen, even green hydrogen, um, and an important partner to anyway decarbonize um, natural gas, Plus, and we shouldn't forget this raw materials and rare earths. So I, I think it's really, um, without Navalny, I would have said we, we really have to work inside the EU to build a new narrative to, to decarbonize our re energy relationship, of course, with Ukraine, but also with, with, with Russia. But I think it would be very difficult to um, find a new narrative, given the fact that in the EU, the relationship with Russia is very much securitized. And of okay. course, the Navalny case and the, the awkward uh, reactions in Moscow didn't help on, on that side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so moving into the energy transition, I mean, you mentioned a few points there uh, about Russia potentially uh, uh, supplying hydrogen, which is something I'd, I'd love to discuss uh, later on. Um, but so the the European Green Deal, the uh, European Climate Law, are striving to bring Europe's emissions to net zero by 2050. Um, how is this goal to be met in terms of changes to Russia's energy mix, <clears throat> and how does where does this leave gas? I think we have to um, think in phases. Um, I, I think gas has really a role to play. I, I think gas is a bridge. I, I cannot see that we take out this bridge and then jump very far, fast and far. Mm -hmm. I, I simply don't see that. Um, and, and I also think that there is the possibility to um, step by step decarbonize natural gas. Um, by, um, well, of course, um, working on methane emissions, which is a major issue, but then also um, blending in, in biogas, blending in synthetic gas, and then, then going down the hydrogen value chain. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something which we, we as I try to say, I, I don't see a big jump, but what I see is quick, fast, very concrete steps. And, and I think um, they are because of the large existing infrastructure, Ukraine and Russia have to play a role, but really Ukraine as well, it, it's in, in, the, in the papers. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also not, we shouldn't just talk about natural gas or gas as an energy source, but also hydrogen as an energy carrier. And we should have in mind the infrastructure, as I mentioned. So I think the infrastructure is an asset, both the pipelines, but also the storage capacity. So this is also why I think from a, a, a national economy or European economy point of view that we, we have to do something with this asset and to use that. Mm -hmm. And looking uh, more closely at hydrogen, uh, so uh, of course, over the summer, we had the European Commission publish its hydrogen strategy. 
and a number of EU states this year have uh, published their national hydrogen strategies, including uh, Germany. Um, so what are the main hurdles that need to be overcome to, to create a functional and at scale uh, market for hydrogen in the future? Uh, I, I think <laughs> quite a few, <laughs> quite a few, <laughs> quite a few, and and not 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 necessarily technical ones because I think we are especially in Europe well placed with the technology. So the the, the big task is now really to kickstart and to scale up very quickly, and not only production but also open. Um, sectors for consumption of hydrogen is then of course and i'm mentioning that because uh, as i see it it's not just um, um changing path dependencies changing tracks on the physical side of the story but also on the regulatory side of the story so it's of course it's the market design it's the whole regulatory framework i was mm -hmm. really impressed when i saw a presentation of, of one refinery mentioning in order to to um feed into um power to x or hydrogen it, it would require to change almost thousand regulations or at least you touch upon thousand so so this is kind of why i was laughing when you asked me where are the hurdles i think it's really a challenge but we we we, we have to face it and we have to deal with it and what i find extremely important right now is to develop a kind of idea for clusters how to move forward and define um, narratives around um, how to create value chains and how to yeah, bring together different actors um, around the value chain. And I think this is really an issue um, inside the EU and for cooperation. And of course, but of course, we are also seeing that differences are quite significant if you look to different strategies. So there's a lot to do on the policy and the regulatory side of the story. Mm -hmm. And the European Commission strategy, uh, it creates room for <clears throat> blue hydrogen um, uh, derived from natural gas uh, with its, its carbon emissions abated using carbon capture. Um, but that's more a, a near-term solution for reducing emissions. But the long-term goal in the strategy is very much focused on green hydrogen um, uh, derived from uh, water using power the process being powered by renewables. Um, so, is, so the idea is that uh, blue hydrogen will help create the market in the shorter term for, uh, you know, create a market ready for green hydrogen when costs of green hydrogen come down. Uh, is, this, is this a good approach? Uh, so some, some gas suppliers have argued that there needs to be a more level playing field between the different hydrogen technologies. Uh, what's your comment on this? Um, I think we are all learning and it's very, uh, and, and looking through all the studies, but my, my feeling at the beginning is that we will need all sources of climate friendly, car potentially carbon neutral hydrogen to kickstart hydrogen value chains but mm -hmm. then of course we have to define um, and 
the, the next steps and dif different phases in how to really get towards a, a carbon neutral and green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it's, I mean, the interesting thing is that in the EU strategy, you also have this electricity based hydrogen um, mentioned, which then simply has the power mix of a, a specific country behind it. And there you also have the mm -hmm. um, necessity to, to decarbonize the electricity generation. So, so I think it, 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 it's fair enough to start from a level playing field. But of course, the, the real goal is to, to decarbonize and have a carbon neutral um, hydrogen supply then. And I also think for the EU industry and technology with regard to um, um, bringing the EU to the forefront, um, bringing the EU, um, making it a technology leader in this very crucial field, um, it's really an issue um, to move forward with, with green hydrogen internally and the value chains and the mm -hmm. models we think um, around this, this sector. Because I think we, we don't have to simply think in huge scales, but maybe also small scales where we could use more locally and, and also export these technologies to, to other countries. So I think it's mm -hmm. both ways. Okay. And... Uh, moving back to where we started in the podcast, going back to Russia, um, is there a place for Russia in a potential European hydrogen market? So, I mean, Russia has the biggest gas reserves in the world. Um, <clears throat> it keeps on finding more gas in, in the Arctic. Uh, it feels like discoveries are being made on, you know, several, several a year. Um, it also has the export pipelines to potentially send the hydrogen to, to European customers. Um, is there a place for Russia in, in the market? Yes, yes. My, my, this is my simple answer. Yes, there is a place mm -hmm. for Russia. Um, and not only for the gas value chain or decarbonizing mm -hmm. the gas value chain, but also um, for raw materials, green electricity. I think, mm -hmm. I mean, it is the natural gas world podcast <laughs> but i think electricity exports from russia green electricity exports are also something we looked into in the past and which <laughs> might be interesting again um so yes but the eu um the paradigm has to change and i think a number of member states really have had to make dif difficult choices for them um, and, and of course russia as well but um to be honest i see russia um moving with regard to its hydrogen strategy being prepared, I was very mm -hmm. astonished about the energy strategy because the previous drafts almost didn't mention hydrogen, but now mm -hmm. you have a whole chapter and quite concrete goals in it. So that's interesting. And we also see Russia moving ahead with Japan discussing the issue. So yeah, Russia has a role and a place in mm -hmm. the European energy mix. Yeah, if I, if I recall what's been uh, discussed about hydrogen in Russia, um, I'm not sure whether this was exactly in the in the strategy, but um, uh, the kind of it's kind of a two two way approach of uh, developing gas based hydrogen, but also um, uh, hydrogen using electrolyzers, but uh, powered by nuclear energy. Of course, Russia having this huge huge fleet yeah. of uh, nuclear power plants. Um, I'm just wondering if, if I mean, this is uh, thinking way ahead uh, in the future, but um, 
I wonder if uh, there would be an issue with uh, of trust and uh, oversight with um, uh, Russia supplying hydrogen and saying it's blue hydrogen, for example, and the carbon emissions have been abated. It's very, it's completely clean or very clean anyway. Um, but I mean, you can't tell by by the cargo of hydrogen. You you can't tell how it was produced. Um, I don't know whether, I mean, this this is maybe something that's applicable to to a lot of countries looking to export hydrogen. So you have um, Australia, Saudi Arabia. Um, that might be another of the many hurdles. <laughs> you, yeah, no, exactly. I think this is part of where Europe can play a role with regard to certification, with regard to, well, the, the, the regulatory framework. Yeah, it's basically standards certification because, yes, as you said, I mean, hydrogen produced from nuclear would be a headache in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but Russia also looks into, into green hydrogen, as some players or steel companies do. But yes, I think standards, certifications or certificates of origin are extremely important. And I see the EU, as you, as you said, I see the EU moving forward with countries that, that share the same rules and, and or, or the same regulatory standards, so kind of multilateral allies to move, yeah, to basically de define a, a framework internationally for trading hydrogen. The, the, the tricky issue is that we don't really have an international institution where to discuss these issues yet. Mm -hmm. So another thing to, to work on. Yeah. Yes. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation, Kirsten, and thank you very much again for, for joining us. Uh, thank so you. it's great to have My you. Yeah. Uh, so this has been another episode of In a Nutshell, the fortnightly webinar hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the news and trends for the global gas industry. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you.